All right, it's Low Profile with Markley Morrison, that's me, and Andrew Dorsett. That'd be me. And for quite some time, you and I have been sort of a tiny Ivor Cutler fan club. We've been talking about getting together to do an episode about Ivor for years, right? Yep, yep, big fan. How would you describe Ivor Cutler to the uninitiated listener, Andrew? Oh man, it's, I think it's a combination of poetry and and humor like you know comedy i guess you might say mm-hmm. and uh and certainly music um and uh it, it, there's just nothing else quite like it i mean it feels distinctly scottish totally um, and i say that as a person who is not distinctly scottish Likewise. Well, actually, I, had, I do have a lot of Scottish blood, it turns out. I did one of those tests. Oh, okay. Um, maybe that's a part of why I identify so well with Mr. Cutler's uh, work. He's, yeah. It, there's like an equal amount of absurdity, and there's a sadness to it as well. Um, right, right. But he, he was very good at appreciating the world around him. Yes. Yeah. And as great as Ivor's songs are, most of his recording output, like you said, is more yeah, prose and poetry. Right. Although There's a lot of spoken word. A man with a hand like a hammer. Oh. <laughs> yeah. A man with a hand like a hammer is hanging a portrait of his wife. Yeah. Beautiful and that's stuff. It. Yeah. Yeah. That's a track yeah. on an album. So anyway, Ivor passed away in the early oddies, and we didn't really know how to approach doing a show on him, but this is it. We found a good way to do it, because this dude named Bruce Lindsay wrote the very first extensive biography on Ivor. It's called Ivor Cutler, A Life Outside the Sitting Room. And uh, so rock and roll biographies talk about a wild life usually and Ivor rocked the mild life but damn if he couldn't call out the peculiarities in his day-to-day life and make it really entertaining Jim O'Rourke who was on the previous episode number 66 covered Ivor Cutler's song Women of the World which we're hearing in the background right now I'm going to play you an outtake from that interview about the time Ivor tried to reach out to him followed by Ivor's own original version of the tune. I was contacted by someone who worked a lot with Ivor and said, Ivor wants to talk to you. And that's freaking me out. And I never, <laughs> <did>. <laughs> I never, never went through it. I never... You never, you never spoke to him? No. no. You know, I was like, oh, no. But, you know, I remember, I forget the name of the bookshop in London that he would always, he would always go to. But when I first... I started buying his stuff. Uh, when I, I, I would be buying it at that bookstore in London, so all my copies have stuff in them. But they would always have uh, these stickers that they would give away that he had made, which were like no, no, no noise, or you know, like noise with a line through and stuff. Like that. Uh-huh. So knowing that, uh, when I got that message about him, that just freaked me out. You know, <laughs> understandable. Crap. If you don't, the world will come to an end And we haven't got long Women of the world, take over Because if you don't, the world will come to an end And we haven't got long Men have had their shot, and look at where we've got. Women of the world, take over, 
because if you don't, the world will come to an end. And we haven't got long. And without further ado, this is Low Profile. Here's Andrew and I speaking to biographer Bruce Lindsay on the life and work of Ivor Cutler. I guess the best way to get into it would be uh, how you came across Ivor Cutler and what led you to decide to make his biography. I first came across Ivor um, when I was 14, um, so 50 plus years ago now. And I'd been to a, a festival um, about 20 miles away from where I lived, Lanchester Arts Festival, uh, to see a, a big jazz band called uh, Centipede. Uh, which I went to see because there were a lot of prog rockers in, in it, including Robert Wyatt, Ollie Household, Mike Pato, Elton Dean from Soft Machine. So, and coming out of the coming out of the gig, I, I was um, picked up a program for the festival, um, and I was being driven home. And in the program, there was a poem, and the poem—I'll get the words slightly wrong—but it was a poem called "Shoes," and it simply goes. Thin shoes tell us more about the world we live in than thick ones. And it was written by somebody called Ivor Cutler, and I'd never heard of Ivor Cutler. Um, but I liked the poem. And then a few months later, uh, he did a John Peel session. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I'd heard his voice. Um, so I've been a fan since then. So, like I say, 50-plus years as, as a fan of Ivor. Sure. And then... Two, three years ago, um, I'd finished my previous book, which was a, a biography of two English traditional folk singers. And I was just kind of casting around thinking, yeah, who else might be interesting to write about? Um, and at the time that there was a, a, there's a series of books called 33 and a Third. I don't know yeah. if you've seen them. Yes. Yeah, yeah we're familiar. Um, well, yeah, the publishers put a call out for, uh, for submissions and I submitted... Um, Velvet Donkey, oh, yeah. uh, one of Ivor's Virgin albums. Yeah. Um, so sent the submission in, heard absolutely nothing, but then thought, well, can I do a bit more with this? And discovered there wasn't a full-length Ivor Cutler biography. Which is madness. Um, which is madness. Um, and I tracked down Ivor's older son, Jeremy, and, and Jeremy said, um, go ahead. Um, and that... That was the story in, in a nutshell, I guess. Ivor died in 2006, so there are still a lot of people around who knew him. Right. Um, both his sons are still alive. His partner of 40 years, Phyllis King, um, was still around. His youngest sister was still alive. And then lots of pe- musicians, poets, um, fellow performers who knew him. So I managed to do... I've read just about a hundred interviews with people who who knew him or at least had met him. Um, plus, say a lot of archive sources. A lot of the John Peel sessions are on the internet. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, a couple of I guess bootleg concert recordings that are out there. But there's also a lot of archive on Ivor as well. These BBC programmes are, are out there, and uh, he gets mentioned in a lot of biographies, including biographies of Paul McCartney, for example. Sure. Um, I think that um, what was really remarkable was how much you were able to glean on his pre-performer life that Mm. I had never heard anything about other than his uh, tales from the Scotch sitting room. When we left the street and were in the country, father became instructive. There is a thistle, he would cry into the wind, pointing a pale finger, and we looked. Then, further along, there is another thistle, again pointing. There were lots of thistles in Scotland. We were soon well acquainted with them. We're both Scottish. Um, We're both teachers. I I taught um, health care students at university. I ever taught primary school and secondary school. Um, I am a bit of a musician. I used to be a sort of musician in covers bands years ago. Okay. Um, so we have a few things in common, I guess, yeah. And oddly, there's um, when Ivor was about 
13 or 14, his family was involved in a car accident, which I talk about in the book. Yes. yes. Um, and the car accident took place five miles from my mother's family's farm. Hmm. So I guess <laughs> that's the nearest I've actually got to either. Um, sort of in, in the borders of Scotland. So we do have uh, a few of those things in common. I qu quite enjoy Franz Kafka, which Ivor enjoyed. I was a fan of Lenny Bruce, and Ivor's a fan of Lenny Bruce. Um, we both, you know, both enjoyed the Beatles music. Um, both enjoyed Soft Machines music, Robert Wyatt. Yeah. Um, uh, his music as well. So yeah, there's a bit of kind of kindred spirit going on, but that's about the most I can lay claim to, I guess. Um, I didn't really know the extent of his involvement with um, with Robert Wyatt, and mm. well, just their the, their friendship and uh, yeah. and I listened yeah. to his features on the Rock Bottom record. I want, I want, I want, give it to me. I give it to you back when I finish the lunch. I lie on the road, passing cars. Yes, me at the head. Busting the tires all day as we roll down the highway towards the setting sun. Rock bottom is, is, is certainly in this country, in, the, in England, a very much loved Robert Wyatt record. Um, and Ivor features on two tracks um, as a guest vocalist. I mean, he, at one stage in his life, he was doing a lot of touring. Yeah, in the 70s, after John Peel kind of brought him to notice the rock fans. Uh, Ivor toured with Van Morrison, he, he performed with The Who, um, he performed as support with uh, Soft Machines, as say. Carla Bley, um, the, the jazz pianist, he, he supported, yeah, supported, uh, supported her. He, he was, you know Zelig, the Woody Allen character, sure. who always always crops up in presidential inaugurations and things. I mean, I was a bit like a rock zealot. You start <laughs> digging and, and you find the guy you know, on the Magical Mystery Tour, um, but he recorded at the Manor, the Virgin Records studio in London. He was on Virgin Records, he was on Rough Trade Records, he was on Creation Records, he was on Harvest. Very hip labels yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, Pink Floyd's label, um, Oasis's label, the Smiths label. I mean, he he was on the same label as some real cutting edge major acts of the of the time. He's also been covered um, by cutting edge major acts of various times. Yes, yeah. yeah he's it's quite strange because the um, obviously the cover started the first cover I managed to track down uh, of a, an act covering one of Ivers was a Finnish ska band. Right. Um, and they recorded a, a, on the B side of a single, I think it was in 81, it's called Ritter, Ritter, Ritter. And it's actually Ivor's Trouble, Trouble, but with Finnish ly lyrics. Uh, there's also a Spanish uh, band uh, who did a, a cover of Ivor's. There's a band called the Parenthetical Girls, which I think might be from your part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good band. Yeah. Uh, and they've got a whole album, or, or what probably is more rightly called an EP, sure. um, of either songs. I need nothing, I've everything I need. I walk along the dusty road, a donut in my hand. The clouds white upon the sky. As white as a woman's skin. I've walked another hundred yards, and I'm not the least bit tired. I need nothing. Yeah, yeah, which is quite fun. There was a um, a jazz band from from the UK uh, called the Golden Age of Steam who covered um, Tomato Brain year before last. So yeah, and of course there's another thing in the book. U2 um, didn't cover either, but they did borrow Women of the World for uh, one of their tours. Um, as kind of a campaign, which is a Jim O'Rourke recording of Women of the World that they actually used. Sadly, I, I didn't manage to track Jim down either, but time and word limits just meant there were a, a few people I had to leave out. Um, but that's probably that's one of the best known covers of an Ivor cut the track that there is. If, if people know Women of the World, it's often because of Jim O'Rourke's version rather than Ivor's own. Mm. So I, I had never put together the uh, the thing that came up several times in 
in your book, but uh, about uh, how he he had some ivory cutlery laying around his place. Yeah. So yeah, it's obviously it's a, it's a pun on his name, and and um, people tended to assume it was Ivor's own pun. But when I spoke to Ron Giesin, a musician who knew Ivor uh, for many years, um, Ron maybe listeners might know him from work he did with Pink Floyd for example um, Ron claims that he was the first person to send Ivor some ivory cutlery ah. uh, and bring that bring that pun to, uh, to bring it home yeah uh, how, how did you find Phyllis King That's... I think it was a Facebook page for a little village in the west of England um, which had an art exhibition kind of open studio kind of exhibition ah. and it said oh Phyllis King Phyllis King will be showing some of her paintings and it gave a phone number and I just rang up and said are you, you know, Phyllis April King and she said she was and that was that was it and she was delightful she's lovely That's great. Yeah. Um, she's um, she is until until the uh, first press copies of the book went out one of which you got she was the only person I'd, I'd shown the manuscript to, and she, she gave me some comments on that final manuscript oh, lovely. Uh, before it went in. And I've got one of her poems in the book, one of my favourite poems, called Uneventful Day, which is on Velvet Donkey. Mm. An uneventful day. No beauty touched my eyes. I didn't gaze on blossomed boughs against March skies, nor feel the warmth of winter sun nor even talk to anyone. But late that evening as I sat reading, I heard a daffodil break its skin. Um, if people are unfamiliar with Phyllis, she was his partner on and off for nearly 40 years. They met in Ibiza in 1971. Um, and they, say, were, were partners... Uh, on and off the rest of his life. Right. I heard. Uh, I heard her in an interview recently saying that uh, one of the first things he told her was that she talked like a poet, and that yes, yes, that sealed their bond. <laughs> yes, apparently, yes. She told me, yeah, that was the best chat-up line she'd ever heard. <laughs> um, yeah. So I reckon you were able to get your hands on a lot of uh, very now obscure archival recordings and things like that did you did you amass quite a collection yeah I, different I, I tv was lucky, shows uh, and radio programs that i've never even heard yeah. of <laughs> well a lot of ivor's kind of pre-beatles stuff was on obscure tv shows and radio mm -hmm. shows which have long since disappeared but there are a lot of, of people out there who collect old, I mean, they used to sort of tape programs off the radio, as I did when sure. I was a kid. Um, and there are archives knocking around in all sorts of surprising places. So I managed to get recordings of some very early um, material that Ivor did for BBC. Um, and as I was saying, a couple of, of concert recordings from later on. Um, there are quite a few... Recordings of programmes arrive always a guest and perhaps an interviewee. Um, and I had a lot of um, newspaper and magazine archive material that reviewed radio and TV programmes. I mean, when I first got onto the, the TV, there were only two stations in Britain. There was the BBC and there was ITV, the commercial station. Um, so that was it. There was no need to number the channels. There are, were only wow. two. And Ivor mostly appeared on BBC. Um, and then he, but a lot of those programmes were, were lost. They, they were destroyed or taped over. But luckily, one that still existed in uh, somebody's collection was a clip of Ivor's only TV appearance as part of a jazz band. Oh, wow. Um, and they did... Uh, Ivor used to frequent the jazz clubs of London and he would go and see he was very fond of jazz music since his before his RAF days in fact he was a fan of Albert, Albert Ammons the boogie woogie pianist uh -huh. um, yep yeah. uh, Lenny Tristano he was a fan of Thelonious Monk he loved as well um, and he used to frequent jazz clubs around London in the early 60s and there were plenty to choose from then 
Um, and he would get talking to some of the musicians and two of the musicians were in a, a very well-known British band at the time called the uh, Don Rendell Ian Carr Quintet. Um, and the bass player, Dave Green, and the drummer, Trevor Tompkins, um, and Trevor sadly died just a, a few months ago, um, got talking to Ivor one night in, in one of the clubs and Ivor said, I've got a gig, do you want to join me? Um, and amazingly, because they didn't know how on earth, you know, they didn't know what Ivor was like as a musician. They just knew he was sure. a fan. But the gig was on BBC Two on late night lineup. So uh, <laughs> Dave and Trevor said, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. Um, so Ivor and Dave and Trevor um, turned up at the BBC studios. Dave Green is, is like a surprising number of musicians an inveterate keeper of diaries, and he still had his diary from, 19, from 1965 and whatever. Um, so he was, Dave was able to say, oh yeah, we got to the BBC studios on this day at 2.30, um, and we got in and we you know, got the, the studio set up, we had a, a, a quick chat, and we played for about five minutes, then me and Trevor went home. Wow. <laughs> and uh, that, was, that was it. And they played a, an improvised acoustic jazz piece called, which I think Dave titled Eastern Feelings, and Ivor decided, Ivor decided to call the trio um, The Three Wise Men, which I thought was a great name for a band, sure. only, only ever played once together for five minutes. <laughs> made just just after Magical Mystery Tour. It's a terrific um, record. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful record. I, I love it. It was produced by George Martin. Um, although George Martin, according to the, the bassist on the album, Jill Lyons, George Martin didn't have a, a very enjoyable time and she thought he was rather grumpy. Um, but uh, yeah, so Ivor made Ludo with Trevor on, on drums again. Um, and the bassist, uh, uh, a bass player called Jill Lyons, who's also an artist um, and was also in Centipede, the band I'd been to see the night I first, first read and Ivor cut the poem, um, and who currently lives 20 miles away from me down the road on the border with Suffolk. But Ludo, I think, is, is a cracking record. It's probably Ivor's most accessible record. It's, it's the most tuneful. Um, yeah. You can you can sing along to things like mud, right. uh, sure. for example. You know, a suck uh, of I mean, my thumb. A suck of my thumb. Yeah. 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 I mean, there. It does have a bit of a jazz trio. I think that that one's titled the Ivor Cutler Trio. Is that right? It and is. It's, it's, yeah. It's got yeah. Kind of a yeah. It's like upright bass and and piano and stuff. Yeah. Kind of a, oh yeah. Yeah. It's Ivor's. Yeah, in Ivor's early days, he was as likely to play piano as he was to play harmonium, which he was be must better know. But Ludo is mostly piano-based drums. Mud, mud everywhere, mud, what'll I do? Mud, mud everywhere, I got a lump right under my shoe. What shall I do with the lump of mud, mummy, what shall I do? Peel a leaf from the linden tree and wipe it off your shoe. What shall I do when my shoe is clean and I step back into the mud? 
Press another lump of mud back on so your shoe won't look absurd. I only recently saw the, um, mud, the footage that was, I guess, a Magical Mystery Tour outtake of Ivor performing mm. I'm Going in a Field. Yeah. In in a field. And yes. That that recording is, uh, I mean, it would have. It would have been pretty sweet if it had been included in the film, because even though he's not a beetle, I feel like yeah. he was definitely along for the ride. Yeah. Um, it was. <laughs> I know you thought he was the courier, yeah. not the driver. Um, <laughs> I mean, I. Paul McCartney was was kind of the guy who got Ivor into Magical Mystery Tour because Paul was the first Beatle to, to declare himself to be a fan of Ivor's, having seen him on, on late night lineup and heard him on the radio. Um, I mean, Paul McCartney, one of the many Paul McCartney biographies, the one written by Barry Miles, who actually knew Paul in the 60s. Uh -huh. um, Paul McCartney tells the story of how he, you know, he used to ring people up and he, he'd heard Ivor seen him on TV, heard his voice, liked what he did, and just rang him up and, and asked him out to dinner. And they got on well with each other. And when Paul was casting around for people to do Magical Mystery Tour, um, the character didn't actually have a name at that time. It was just Small Man. <laughs> um, and uh, Paul got either involved, and I said, oh, gee, I'd love to do it, but... Uh, can I be called Buster Blood Vessel? And so Paul thought, yeah, why not? Because of course. And that's where it came from. Yeah, I love that he just had that one in his pocket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so, they, so that's how he got in. And then um, it was a fairly short-lived relationship. I mean, the filming only took maybe about a week that Ivor took part in filming. And uh, I don't think that he saw any of the Beatles really after that. I've, I've got people who he spoke to about the experience quite early on, he said, and he said he liked Paul, but then in later interviews he said he preferred John. Um, but he clearly liked both both of them. Depends um, on the day, I suppose. Yeah, that's, that's what you get with Ivor's stories, it depends on the day. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you, you get various different versions of, of different Ivor Cutler stories, some of which may be completely apocryphal, some of which might just be... Uh, slightly different variations on a theme. I'm going in a field I'm going in a field I'm going in a field to lie down My lover's eyes are blue I'm going in a field surface um, a bit like a love song. Ivor as usual doesn't do straightforward love songs but he talks about going in a field not to a field in a field to lie down um, and Ivor being Ivor he lies down not on the grass but next to the grass. Yeah. Um, and then he talks about his lover's eyes being blue um, and it does sound quite lovely but Talking to people, and Katie Tunstall was, was the first person who, who said this, said, well, to me, it, it's somebody who's singing about death and possibly singing you know, when they are dying. That going in a field to lie down is saying, this is what I'm going to do when I die. And the line about the lover's eyes doesn't imply that that person is with either. Right. It's a memory of this person. And, you, you know, that's what you can do with so many of Ivor's songs and, and poems. You can put completely different spins on them, and it turns them from being quite sweet romantic things to something far more melancholy and, and, and sad. Right. Like another one, uh, Beautiful Cosmos. The, the situation yeah. he's describing is completely mundane. <laughs> but mm. it... Uh, 
but it comes across as very heartfelt and touching, you know, uh, on the surface. Yeah. Such a beautiful song. It, it is, and I think when you get to my age, and I've, I've got probably a generation on you two guys, um, it becomes kind of a desirable state of living. You know, you're at that state um, where sitting with somebody very special, just eating a sandwich, drinking a cup of tea and thinking your own thoughts, um, it's actually, you know, it's a nice place to be. Um, and I, you know, everybody assumes it's Ivor singing about his relationship with Phyllis. Um, so I asked Phyllis, I said, you know, we all make this assumption that Beautiful Cosmos is about you and Ivor. And she told me, well, probably, but Ivor never told me it was. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. What do we talk of whenever we meet? Nothing at all. You sit with a sandwich, I look at a roll. Sometimes I open my mouth, then shut it. We have a beautiful cosmos, you and me. We have a beautiful cosmos. I, one thing I found fascinating is how he uh, really turned around his stance on uh, children, went from nurturing and uh, really, <laughs> you know, making a huge difference in the lives of the children mm. he taught when he was teaching school. Ivor's time as a teacher is it, really separates into three sections. Um, he trained in, in Scotland after, uh, after he, he left his, his last job in, after the war. There was a shortage of teachers and, and Ivor went and trained as a secondary school teacher because men weren't allowed to, qualify, to train as primary school teachers. That's kind of 5 to 11 year olds in, in, in Britain. Secondary is, is 11 to sort of 16 or 18. Mm. So he trained as a, a secondary school teacher and then he taught in a, a town near Glasgow called Paisley. And he hated it. Um, and it was quite an unruly class. All of the teachers um, administered corporal punishment um, on a regular basis. And in fact, Ivor ended up having to do that as well, which I, he never liked to do. He left after a couple of years. And they, um, they used to uh, beat children using a leather strap called a TAWS, T-A-W-S-E. Um, sort of a long leather strap which was split down the middle to form two kind of tongues okay. that you could hit, hit more effectively with. Sure. Um, education. You, I mean, I, education. <laughs> I mean, Ivor claims when he was a pupil in Glasgow, he was actually beaten 200 times by his teachers wow. over the course of his school career, which sounds fairly frequent, but not remarkably so for the time. So after two years as a teacher in Paisley, he moved to England um, in 1950, and that was him leaving Scotland for good. He never lived in Scotland again after that. And he moved, first of all, to a school in rural Suffolk, which is the county just below the county I live in, Norfolk, a school called Summerhill. And Summerhill was one of Britain's first, possibly the first progressive school in Britain. It was a boarding school and it was run along democratic lines. So children were part of the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. They had the choice whether or not they wanted to go to class and so on. And I taught there for a couple of years and was a great admirer of the man who'd established the school, another Scotsman called A.S. Neil. Um, and Ivor was well known enough to actually be interviewed for A.S. Neil's biography a few years later. He spent two years there and then for reasons which are not quite clear, um, there was something of a, a disagreement between Ivor and, and uh, the head teacher A.S. Neil. So Ivor left and he, he took up teaching in London and in London he moved to primary school teaching. And that's what you were talking about. Um, Ivor taught English, drama, poetry, music to predominantly um, pupils in sort of the top half of primary school, so maybe seven to eleven year olds. And the vast majority seemed to have loved it and I think without exception all of the ex-pupils I spoke to 
said they, they loved Mr Cutler's lessons and they really looked forward to his lessons. Like you say, he would encourage them to be a little bit naughty, he would be encourage them to be quite free-thinking. Mm -hmm. um, he would get them to be creative around music, around drama, um, and just try and get them, along A.S. Neal's philosophy of education, education works more effectively if you enjoy the learning process. Yeah, absolutely. Very, yeah, very <laughs> counter to the experience in Paisley. Um, so I've spent 30 years nearly teaching primary school in London. Um, and he taught some, the children of well-known parents, in a few cases of which have gone on to be well-known in the arts themselves. So I mentioned Ken Russell earlier, the film director. Um, he taught Ken Russell's son, Xavier. Um, Xavier is now a film, a film editor. Um, he taught a very famous classical guitarist in this country, John Williams, um, who you, you may have known. In the, he was in a prog band called Sky at one point in the 70s. Mm. Um, he, he taught John Williams' daughter Kate, who's now an award-winning jazz keyboard player. Um, he taught the children of Roger McGough, who's one of the Liverpool poets, uh, and a member of Scaffold uh, and Grimm's and, and other artists. So he, he had quite an influence on the kind of art scene um, through the children that he taught. You know, he taught children who went on to be painters, ceramicists, um, arts administrators and arts managers as well. Um, and he, he was much loved by the children that I spoke with. Not all the children got him. And some parents were very much against his, his teaching approach because it wasn't what they expected a teacher yeah, to do. It was very unconventional. It's quite a liberal approach. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, a lot of, say, all the, all the ex-pupils I spoke with um, said they'd loved it. And in almost, I think, in every case, they said their parents were uh, fans of Mr Cutler's teaching methods as well. So he's doing this. He's doing this teaching in London from about 1953 to about 1980. So when he's at his most famous, when he's filming with the Beatles, he's going back to London the week later and teaching seven-year-olds how to dance. Um, he's doing a John Peel session one day and going into class the next day and getting them to write poems. Um, he takes some of the songs he taught children and they appear on records later on. Mud. We talked about mud. Yeah. Um, that was a, a, a song he taught to children before he recorded it. Um, there's, a, there's a song about uh, playing football, playing soccer, called Pass the Ball Jim, um, which he recorded one of his later albums. I forget which one at the moment. But he, you know, he said he invented that, um, watching children play football at school and then taught it to children in the classroom. So all of these things played one off against the other. He would do things in class which would end up as poems or stories or songs, and he would write songs that he would then bring to the class um, to get the children to sing. Yeah. But, yeah, like, like you say, in, in later years, he wasn't always complimentary about children. Um, and I, particularly very small children. And there are a couple of examples of um, small children making noises in either Cutler concerts and either stopping performing and asking for them to leave yeah. as well. Get them um, out of here. I, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I think he, he could be quite intolerant because an Ivor Cutler concert isn't like going to see Deep Purple or Aerosmith. It's, it's not 100 million decibels coming at you through huge PAs. Mm -hmm. It's it's a little a little Scotsman on a little keyboard. Yeah, it's subtle. Play, playing quiet and subtle songs. So even, you know, in a thousand seat concert hall, one small shrill voice at the back of the hall can be, you know, a problem for concentration. Particularly as Ivor as he got older had a, a real physiological problem with noise. Right. He was a card carrying member of the Noise Abatement Society. He was for many years. Yeah, he uh, did. He invent that? No, oh. no, he didn't invent wow. it. It was, it was invented by another person, but he became quite a fervent supporter of the Noise Abatement Society. Um, 
which runs counter to the the idea of this man who loved flying in a rickety RAF bomber uh -huh. becoming a navigator because those things were loud. Very nice. yeah. um, but 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 talking to other people, talking to Phyllis and John Newtus and John Burnside, the poet, and another of his friends, the, the the intolerance to noise seemed to come on over the years and build up over the years. It wasn't something that was always there. And may have been, I mean, one, one friend of ours did say that the problem with noise might have been the result of hearing damage doing the factory jobs and the RAF flying when he was, you know, during the sure. war. Comes back but to he, haunt But it did cause him problem. Yeah, it did cause him uh, difficulties in terms of how he could deal with small children, how he could deal with loud applause, how he could deal with loud bands. So he would often, you know, supporting somebody like Soft Machine, he would leave as soon as he finished his set because he couldn't stand the volume that bands like that would play at. Yeah, I, that's what I was, I was thinking a lot about that, in particular listening to the, um, his contribution on Rock Bottom, uh, Robert mm. Wyatt, was would, would I ever listen to this entire record? Right. Or did I wonder if he ever even heard yeah. it? You know, uh, I don't. I don't know. Hmm. It's, it's interesting because I. I never thought to ask because I spoke to Robert. Right, you did. Yeah. Um, I spoke to Robert a few times about his friendship with Ivor. Pardon me, and I spoke to Fred Frith, who is on Rock Bottom and on Velvet Donkey. Um, but the one thing I didn't ask either of them was. Did Ivor ever listen to the album? Because he, his, yeah. his, you know, his his vocals were were added after most of the other parts were at, were recorded. Mm -hmm. Although Fred Frith, Fred Frith um, remembers that he came in after Ivor had finished, but um, you know it wasn't an as live recording. Um, so I don't know if he did ever hear it. I don't know if he did ever hear it. He certainly never commented on. The songs themselves. He commented on how much he, he liked and admired right. Robert Wyatt and how much he loved Robert's music. But I've never seen anything where I've said, "Oh, if, if, if I'd re-recorded that now, I'd have done this or what right. have you." It was all personal. But it's a yeah, yeah. It's a rarity that that uh, appearance on Rock Bottom. He did very few guest appearances on any on other people's records. Very few. Um, and when I I was in touch with Robert. Robert actually did email me back at one point and say, I'd no idea when I invited Ivor to appear on Rock Bottom that this was something he never did. Um, I was just so proud that he agreed to do my record. Which I think says something where, something about how Robert saw Ivor, given Robert's status in, in, in the, that sort of progressive scene for decades. Are his books still readily available in the UK, um, Ivers? Um, a month ago, Ivers said not at all, because they weren't. Mm. But um, Jeremy and Dan run, his two sons, run a, a company uh, called Horgy House, named after one of Ivers' pieces. And they've just, I believe, are just about to re-release uh, life in a Scotch sitting room. Oh, good. And according to their Instagram, I think, um, they've got plans to re-release some of Ivor's other books. I... Um, but until that point, you could get those small poetry books that he... those sort of three-inch by four-inch poetry books that Ivor produced with ARC publications. You could still buy copies of them um, online. I think through Jeremy. Some used copies or dead but, stock? No, they they were kind of, I guess, yeah, dead stock is probably what you'd call them. So he had a few copies left, but the vast majority of the books, particularly um, Glasgow Dreamer, Life in the Scotch Sitting Room and the children's books, you were having to search online for second-hand copies. I was lucky and enough some to of find them... three of his children's books here in, in the Northwest. Right. We got, oh, and right. I've been reading right. them to my daughters. Um, they especially okay. enjoyed Herbert, the the five uh -huh. stories of Herbert. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. I enjoyed them too. Yeah. yeah, me too. And then we got uh, Grape Zoo, and mm -hmm. uh, the, the one about the chicken. What was that? Oh yeah, Doris. 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 Yeah, 
Thoris I was surprised to yeah. find those just a, a couple hours away at a at a used bookstore. Yeah. So they, they made they made yeah, the rounds I mean, here I, I, at some point. Yeah. I know there were American versions. Some of them had slightly different titles. Right. Think, they did the talk States. about soccer in well, one of them. And I know they wouldn't have done uh, that <laughs> over there. No. He, he was not a fan of, of uh, football, soccer, indeed any, any sport, but he, he definitely wrote football when he did talk about yeah. them. But the, the, children, I mean, the children's books I, I love because you say you can enjoy them as an adult as well. It's, I love Herbert stories. I love the way in which they exist in this kind of, a bit like Winnie the Pooh. I'm a huge fan of the, of the Pooh stories oh, as yeah. well. And they exist... They exist in their own universe, and, and it doesn't matter if things happen that shouldn't happen. Like in Grape Zoo, when the little girl takes things in her father's lorry, and she just jumps in the lorry in, in the yeah. truck and drives the, drives the truck to, to Maisie the Wise's house. Nobody bats an eyelid there's a four-year-old girl driving this truck without crashing it uh, along the road. And when Herbert turns into... Yeah, whatever he turns into, yeah. and, uh, fine. An elephant, you know, everyone's happens. like, oh, so you are. An elephant, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know. It, it's like, you know, it's almost Franz Kafka, but with exactly. laughs. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, it's metamorphosis, but with a happy ending. <laughs> and, you know, and, and Ivor loved Kafka. You know, he, he was a... Another big influence on Ivor's life was, was Kafka. So the, I would love to see the children's stories come back into uh, circulation, but I don't know what copyright issues are regarding publications. It's, it's not always easy to tease things out. I, um, certainly UK copyright can be quite complicated and probably even more complicated in the States. Um, but I know Meal One, which is another much-loved children's book of Ivor's, that was recently dramatised for the stage. Is that right? Um, so that's been doing a, a short tour of, of British venues, and hopefully um, there'll be more of that to come. As Were well. you able to see the play based on Ivor's work that they did uh, some years ago? I I didn't see it um, live, but luckily the production company uh, gave me access to a video oh, of it. Oh, lucky you! So so I have <laughs> yeah, I have seen it. It's called The Beautiful Cosmos of Ivor Cutler. Um, and it is a play based loosely on Ivor's life and his relationship with Phyllis. So the two, the two key characters are Ivor and Phyllis. Mm. Um, and there is a, an ensemble on stage... Uh, I think a quintet of musicians who also take on some of the other roles within the film, within the play. Um, and it features a lot of Ivor's songs. It features on stage his famous um, harmonium with, I always say, sewer written on it. Yeah. But Phyllis, Phyllis always says sewer written on it. Two very different interpretations yeah. of that word. Um, it was it was too out of tune for for the cast to be allowed to play it sadly, um, mm. but it's a it's a full length play about Ivor's life. Um, it includes a little bit about his early life. It includes um, a scene about his RAF days, about him as a as a as a teacher, but mostly you know his his later life when he became well known yeah. as a performer. And it's a lovely lovely play. What's your favourite jam? Traffic jam, traffic jam. What's your favorite jam? Traffic jam. What's wrong with raspberry? What's wrong with plum? How's about a blob of elderberry on a scone? What's your favourite jam? Traffic jam. It's the jam for a man. Either at some point, it's not clear when, um, he got this idea of getting little printed sticky labels, maybe half the size of a credit card. So just 
white backgrounds, black print or gold backgrounds, black print. Um, and he would have them specially made with his own particular collection of uh, proverbs, epithets, phrases, statements. Um, and he would carry these little collections of stickies around with him, certainly for 30 years, possibly for longer. And he would renew, use different ones. And he would hand them out to strangers in the street. He would stick them on lampposts, on people's buses, uh, on people's coffee cups um, in cafes. Um, and he would send them to, to fans and stick them on his envelopes. And they would say, I mean, a couple of my favourites. One, one of my favourites is, uh, I am beautiful which he, he said he enjoyed giving to bus drivers when they were looking particularly stressed <laughs> in their daily uh -huh. work. Um, he had another collection which, of labels printed which simply said, Funny Smell. <laughs> um, one of my favourites is a set he had printed which simply say, Don't tell me what kind of day to have. <laughs> That's the best one. <laughs> Which is my favourite. <laughs> it's got my favourite. But I think over, over the years there are dozens of different labels. You sometimes find them inside books because he would stick them inside his own books or he would sign his own books. Um, and certainly a lot of people he wrote to um, didn't just keep his letter but they keep his envelope as well because his envelopes will be covered in these stickies. Um, as well as the postage stamps, they did put the stickies. So they became, you know, as one of his friends, Craig Murray Orr, said, you know, they, they were as much his art as anything else was. He took, you know, he took great time to think of what to have printed on these stickies, and he took a lot of trouble to thinking about where to put them, who to give them to, which ones to use. He had some made up, for example, that had the Noise Abatement Society telephone number on <laughs> as well wow. and he would hand those out and say you know just phone up and join and join this society um, so you do get these these uh, printed labels all over um, and I think pretty much everybody I spoke with for the book who'd been sent those labels still had them right yeah you know, still had a collection they're keepers they've got them they're keepers yeah not yeah. all of his art was permanent though I I don't think any of the, no. he used to like to go, I, I'd never heard of this, but in your book, you go around on the, on the sidewalks and draw chalk around any dog he found. Yeah. <laughs> Pointed out. Yeah. Yeah. That, I like to think, I like to think Ivor was the first person to do that, but that is a bit of a British thing. Is that a thing people you do, do see, now? You, you do see that from time to time. Have you ever because, done it? Um, not personally, no. Why? I don't intend to. No. I don't intend to either. You don't want to get that close. Um, I well, I live in the country. Yeah, we've got a, I've got a field outside the front of the house. Uh -huh. And so, you know, if you were spray painting over around dog sh around here, you'd spend all your spare cash on cans of paint. So it's not... <laughs> um, but in the city, it's, it's much less common now. But, um, it is, yeah, I like to think Ivor maybe was one of the first. So he would draw flowers or little balloons or things around. Um, I mean, this is right in the middle of London. This is around where he lived in, in around Camden in, uh, in London. Um, and it, it was a bit of a problem where he was at one particular point. So he started to do that. And that was something that uh, he, he said had an impact. You know, people were kind of shamed into clearing up after their dogs. Yeah, kindly shamed. Um, I like that. Yeah. So it's kind of a nice, you know, he was being nice about it in a way. He was saying, look, you know, just, just see what your dog has done and do something about it. But I get at the time, I mean, you know, going back to the 70s and 80s, people didn't clear their dog mess up. Yeah. And so, it, you know, it was a, a bit of a, a bit of a situation. But he produced, you know, when you look at Ivor's body of work, though, it, there's masses of it anyway. That's tremendous. To enjoy. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't leave us short, you know, sort yeah. of 30 books. Um, I don't know how many albums, about a dozen albums, not counting compilations, a host of BBC radio series, and, and, and say a few TV performances, Magical Mystery Tour, and, and others. And like you were saying earlier, Markley, the um, Looking for Truth with a Pin documentary, there's um, the last concert he ever did that the BBC also recorded, and that's. Uh, you know, that, that gets shown occasionally from, t from time to time as well. So 
it's a nice documentary, but I, I think um, the final concert is quite nice as well. I mean, you can tell this is, this is a man who's, who's no longer at his peak, you know, physically or mentally, but, but there's a, a lot of nice stuff in it and uh, a lot of little asides and you know, little bits of drama. And, you know, watching and knowing it's his final performance, which I think he'd already decided it was going to be, um, adds a little bit of uh, a sort of the melancholy to the to the evening as well. Well, now you're you're pretty much the the authority on his uh, his output <laughs> and body of work. I feel like it's a uh, just the most comprehensive document on who who was Ivor Cutler. Do you feel like he's a friend by now? <laughs> I I wouldn't be so presumptuous. <laughs> I, I was never formally introduced, and I think unless you're formally introduced to Mr. Cutler, um, he wouldn't count you as a friend. But I'd like to, you know, I said in the introduction to the book, I thought long and hard because this, you know, he had this reputation of getting quite cross if you called him Ivor without him giving you the invitation to do that. Uh -huh. um, and I thought, well, I can't call him Mr. Cutler through 100,000 words of biography. Um, so I made this decision that when I'm talking about him in his role as a teacher, I call him Mr. Cutler, and the rest of the time I call him Ivor. And um, hopefully he'll be happy with uh, with that decision wherever he might be at the moment. Um, and uh, Phyllis, uh, I, I mentioned it to Phyllis, and she didn't say, "Oh no, 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 he would not be happy with that." So I'm taking that as. Uh, permission in to some extent very good <laughs> but i'm sure there i'm sure there are mistakes in the book there are errors in the book there are absences but uh, you know that's for the next biographer to fill the gap absolutely well gee thank you so much mr Lindsay, for being with thank us thank you and thank you for inviting yeah, me treat. thanks for yeah. sharing your book and uh, i can't wait to get a hard copy Make sure you do. And where can the listener find your work, including your other work and your ongoing projects? Um, well, the the books are on, say, the usual online outlets. So from the publisher direct or on um, Amazon. And I, I mean, the publisher has an American arm. Mm -hmm. So whether they'll get into some of the some of the bookshops in the states, but certainly online, it's available um, through Equinox Publishing, which is the the company or the usual outlets um yeah hopefully as many bookshops as i can get it get them into but if you want to look at more of my writing most of my music journalism from an american perspective is on all about jazz the uh, the online jazz journal so i've been writing for them for about 12 years now i think okay. so there's a few hun few hundred pieces on there including quite a lot of interviews with musicians from Steve Howe of Yes, through to I think Robert Glasper's on there somewhere, and uh, a few other artists, so you can see that. Or uh, put in a plug for my other main outlet at the moment, which is London Jazz News, which is a London based jazz website, but that covers uh, the entire world of, of jazz and contemporary musics there. And I've, I've recently um, had a, an interview published on there with Paul Jones, who older listeners might remember as the lead singer of Manfred Mann. Sure. Okay. Um, still performing in his 80s, um, and recently produced a, an excellent double album retrospective uh, of some of his blues recordings. Excellent. All right, well, it's been killer talking to you. And, uh, and you. Yeah, you have a lovely night. Okay. Thanks for your time. Don't tell me what kind of day to have. Such a sweetheart, that Bruce Lindsay, and then he just uh, ends it on such a sour note there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this, this was so fun to listen to. How can I listen to more of this? Well, uh, if you go to lowprofilepodcast.com, there's the full archive of all the previous shows, and then there's little write-ups and uh, related links to all the subject matter as well. So you can find a page about this episode too. Okay, wait, wait, let me write it down here. Low, low, low. Oh, all right, got it. That's it for today. And uh, check back in a couple weeks. We'll have 
the one and only Jim O'Rourke right here on Low Profile, the podcast that stays at least six feet away from popular music. Here's the question. What do I do? I hit pause or stop? Can I just hit stop?